Welcome to ConX, a global leadership platform for construction executives. Today I have Brian, and forgive me if I mess your name up, I'm going to try it though. Termel? Termel, you got it. That was close enough oh, okay. for, uh, for government work, yes. Brian oh, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. So uh, I, have, I have him here with me today. He is the uh, Vice President of Public Affairs and Strategic Initiatives for AGC of America. So, um, uh, unfortunately he lives in Washington, DC, you know, um, but, uh, uh, we'll still give him the time of day. So where are you from, Brian? Well, actually I'm originally from South Florida, a little town uh, on the East coast known as Stewart, Florida. Uh, and then, you know, yes, I'm from Washington. No, I'm not actually here to help. Um, but, uh, uh, <laughs> I quickly moved to D.C. to teach, this is way off topic, but to teach second grade in D.C. public schools. And then, you know, I met and fell in love with a local and married her. We're still married and have three lovely, sometimes surly children. But, uh, uh, you, you know, so I just ended up being in Washington, largely, you know, not for like the typical reasons people come to D.C., but somehow like Washington, like you know, like federal Washington still sucks you in and. I worked as a Fed for a long time at the, the, the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration and the Department of Transportation. But I've been with AGC for about 11, 12 years now. And oh, okay. the cool thing about that job is it actually gets me out to the real world a lot. And, you know, what, you know, what someone who wasn't once a kid who was one, let me, how do I put that? Someone who was once a kid gets excited by the fact that my job takes me to an awful lot of construction sites around the country which I continue to think is super cool and continue to be impressed with the work our members do. So anyway, sorry. Yes. No, no problem. Uh, well, so let's, you know, tell us about yourself. You, you told us a little bit, you grew up in Florida, but tell us about yourself. How did you get from Florida to Washington DC through your professional and your personal life? Sure. You, you know, it's funny that I ended up in DC when, when I was in, I think seventh or eighth grade, I took that inevitable or sort of, you know, if you grew up on the East Coast, odds are good that, you know, at the end of your middle school experience, you took that motor coach trip to DC to see like the Smithsonian and the monuments and everything. And I remember driving through DC and thinking, gosh, this looks like a really cool town to live in. You got to remember, like, grew up in South Florida, like, if nothing is older than 1952. And, you know, and then you're driving around this city where, like, everything is, you know, 100 150 years old and and you know it was just really cool but anyway like then of course i immediately forgot about that and moved on to other things uh and then after college i, I went to college in atlanta and, and um you know I, I had this idea that i was going to end up being a, a high school history teacher at some like i, I don't know it was like um uh, dead poet society style like northeastern boarding school and and <laughs> That that didn't work out, and it turns out the finances of that are just awful. But uh, um, I, I was looking around for a, a job, and and I got admitted into this. Teaching. I got into this program called Teach for America. Uh, so I was going to save the world at one point before it sold out. But anyway, I got into Teach for America, which, <laughs> for those who don't know anything about it, is it puts college graduates in urban or very rural school districts that are experiencing teacher shortages so and gives them kind of a crash course in how to be a teacher. And then you go in and you teach for a minimum of two-year commitment. And then the hope is it's kind of an, sort of an evangelical group for education reform. And, and I'll get to that later because I'm actually in, in AGC work, do a lot of pushing for education reform, as it turns out. But, um, uh, you know, so I didn't, think, I didn't know anything about it. I was so naive. I was like, what? D.C.'s got the teacher shortages? There are bad schools in D.C.? And unfortunately, <laughs> it turns out there are, you know, particularly in the mid-1990s, you know, the city's public school system was a hot mess. And uh, so I did end up teaching in a part of town known as Anacostia for two years. I taught second grade in D.C. public schools. And I was not a particularly good teacher. But, boy, it's if you can survive sort of getting airdropped out of nowhere into an urban, you know, inner city classroom uh, and and figure out a way to like, you know, not get overruled by the children and actually do something for two years. 
you're probably prepared for just about any other job you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, job doesn't require like craft skills that you can do. Uh, so after my two years of teaching um, and meeting my wife, who was also a, de- a teacher, America teacher, and still teaches, she was much better than I was at that, but um, uh, is much better. Uh, the uh, I got into public affairs through a, you know, there are a bunch of PR firms, as you might imagine, and every town in DC has more than its fair share of them. And worked in PR firms for about four years. And, and then um, I, sort of a, a, a guy who had been a, a, a vice president at the PR firm where I worked at before me, before I even started there, uh, ended up pulling me into the then brand new transportation security administration uh, after some, you know, after 9-11 or early 2002 mm-hmm. uh, it, when it was just being created. And you know, in the public relations world, it's a little bit like drinking out of a fire hose in that, you know, I mean, there was just kind of a nonstop crisis every day. Everyone was paying in the media was paying very close attention to, uh, you know, what was going on, converting all the airport security screenings into these federal screeners that we have today. And, you know, I started as the junior guy there and because I was the only one not dumb enough to make up an answer to like the people we reported to, Everyone else I worked with got banned from these meetings for making up answers. So I ended up being the only one who was required to go report to the higher up. So that ended up being good for my career. And at some point I ended up moving from the Transportation Security Administration to being kind of the head of public affairs, kind of, to being the head of public affairs at the U.S. Department of Transportation, kind of in the second half of the George W. Bush administration. And then, you know, as these things happen in Washington, um, the guy who was the top attorney at the Department of Transportation uh, had worked earlier in his career with Steve Sander, who's the CEO of ADC of America. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, DJ Griffin was the lawyer's name. And DJ pulls me in at some point and says, hey, you know, like, what are you doing to find another job? Because you're a political appointee and, you know, your job expires at the end of 2008. And I told him and he's like, that's not nearly enough. Let me make a few phone calls for you. And one of the people he called was Steve who happened to be looking for a public affairs person, the, the, the one that had been there had left to move to Delaware because her husband became the forester for the state of Del- Delaware. I didn't even know Delaware had forest. And, um, <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, I got hired and I've been at uh, AGC really ever since the end of 2008. Um, and, you know, that was unfortunately for the construction industry, you know, the point in time when, uh, the demand for construction sort of fell out, you know, the floor for demand for construction fell away and the industry was essentially in a kind of a depression uh, for about two or three years. So it was, uh, we spent the first couple of years really fighting for measures to boost sort of demand for construction projects around the country. Uh, and then really since about 2011, 2012, it was remarkable how fast things changed. We've been spending an enormous amount of our time you know, really trying to address these construction workforce shortages that, that um, uh, you know, you can't get, you know, if you get three contractors in a room, you're going to get four opinions about uh, why there are not enough construction workers out there to hire. So, you know, that's something we spend a lot of time on. So, I'm sorry, there's a long-winded answer to your question of how I got to AGC. Hopefully, I didn't, like, lose the point on the on the way to the answer. No, not at all. It sounds like uh, your life uh, – is like the roads in Kentucky. They're, they're, they always say that cattle develop the roads in Kentucky because they're wandering, you know? They go from one place to the other. You so. know, and, 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 and I guess it's, you know, this is a whole other conversation for a whole other podcast, but, you know, I, I think that it's not unusual. I'm a Gen Xer, right? For Gen Xers uh, and younger to have a career path that is a little bit more varied than, you know, I think of some of the kind of the boomers or sort of, yeah, late boomers that are, you know, that were at AGC when I started who, you know, had been working there for 40 years, you know, that's just not as common, uh, I think, the, the younger you get. So tell us about, uh, now, I understand AGC and probably the majority of listeners understand what, what AGC is, but I want to hear your take on it, too. I've heard Richard Vincent, which is my local, you know, Kentucky and if you know Richard, I'm sorry. You know, no, I'm just joking. Richard's a really good guy. Uh, and he, and when he listens to his podcast, I just want to put his name in there so so I get to plug him. But uh, Richard's a wonderful, wonderful guy. He's 
been around Kentucky for a long time, has a lot of respect from the contractors. But tell us about AGC and kind of what you do for AGC. Well, you know, first of all, if Richard's listening, uh, and you're right, he's, he's a great guy and, and runs a the fantastic, quietly runs a fantastic chapter, uh, which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever been invited over to their 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 headquarters in Frankfurt, but they've got a shrine to bourbon, as, as I guess maybe every association in Kentucky does, they have a shrine room to bourbon where they've got, <laughs> you know, more bottles than I'll ever, I would ever be able to sort of experience in a single lifetime in a single room. And I guess that's because they host um, some tailgates at uh, over in Lexington, the, the horse park there, which name eludes me. Um, Keeneland. Apparently, pardon me? Keeneland. Yes, that's the, it. Yeah. That's it. You, you know, and, and where they're known for serving lots of great bourbon. And they do have their own branded, um, I guess it's a Woodford Reserve kind of AGC of Kentucky bottle, which. which yeah, I actually nice. have one sitting on, I have one sitting on my desk desk here. Well, yeah, I think it's mine. So perhaps, you know, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I, I was so distracted by Richard. What was your question again? I just uh, tell us a little bit about AGC and your role at AGC. Sure. Well, you know, so we're the, the, the trade association for the, the commercial construction industry, right? So we uh, represent contractors who build everything except for, you know, the single family homes. So they don't build the meandering muse housing development, but they build everything else, including all the utility infrastructure that goes in there, the strip mall with the grocery store outside, all the office buildings, uh, airports, factories, retail outlets, highways, locks, dams, bridges, anything that requires a hard hat and, and boots, but but isn't a single family home. And as their trade association, we really do, it's kind of three and a half main things for the industry, right? You know, we, we advocate in Washington, D.C. for the commercial construction industry. So that's, we've got a team of lobbyists who spend all their time, bless their souls, up on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, working to you know, to secure legislation that's good for the industry and pushing back against regulation or legislation that's bad for the industry. That that same team of lobbyists and sort of a larger group also spends a lot of time interacting with federal agencies because so much of what happens in Washington anymore is is not about making laws, but it's about it about promulgating regulations, right? That sort of the boring stuff that never gets mm-hmm. in the news that actually really makes life difficult for a lot of employers. And uh, so we spent a lot of time trying to push back against the regulatory state and make sure that we've got, you know, measures that are effective in protecting workers in the environment without, you know, making it impossible to actually operate as a successful business. Uh, and then we get involved in, in an enormous number of, of, of legal cases, uh, including, you know, in, in, in local and state courts where the issue is, we think of significance. So that's, kind of the advocacy work. We're out there essentially fighting for the industry uh, with the federal government and the judicial system. Uh, and then we, we um, educate the industry, right? We've got a whole host of educational programming. Some of it's kind of traditional education programs. You know, we've got courses on lean and building information modeling, construction supervisory programs, safety programs. We have an enormous amount of sort of ad hoc learning opportunities, you know, through webinars and in-seat events, tons of virtual education programs that we do. You really sort of convert everything actually to virtual after the coronavirus pandemic uh, started last year. Uh, and, and then we connect members, you know, right? We connect members with each other or with the folks that they need to uh, know to be successful business operators. And that connecting part um, has a lot to do with what, one of the reasons people join in association is appreciation that, hey, you know, whatever challenge I'm facing, someone else in my industry has probably already faced it and solved it. And I'm joining an association because I want to network and know those people and be part of that same community so that they can tell me what they've done and how they've solved a problem so I can learn from them and be a better contractor, better construction professional. Uh, So we spend a lot of time connecting members with each other so they can sort of learn from each other. And, you know, while there are obviously a few trade secrets, you know, there's nothing parochial about, you know, workforce development, about safety measures. Uh, and, and you know, it's a competitive industry, but it's also filled with a lot of people who uh, are proud of what they do and are happy to share their success stories. 
And then the half of the other thing that we do is we save members an awful lot of money, right? We have a whole host of affinity programs. And uh, uh, you can, you know, with trucking company, you know, with General Motors, with uh, 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 BP, with FedEx, with Enterprise Fleet Management, uh, you know, office suppliers, Home Depot, uh, so that uh, as you're purchasing the trucks and, man, you know, and the services you need to be a business, you can get significant discounts on those purchases as an agency member that far, you know, if you take advantage of the full program would far offset the cost that you pay to your local chapter and dues. And I would, my role at AGC, just kind of the, the last part of your question is, uh, you know, Vice President of Public Affairs and Strategic Initiatives, what does that mean? The first part of that is it's my job to get the words Associated General Contractors of America into the news or into sort of the public dialogue as often as possible. Uh, really kind of the best way to put it is uh, it, by the time our lobbyists walk into an office in Capitol Hill or in a federal agency to talk about an issue, that when they raise that issue, the member of Congress, their staffers or the federal officials will say, yeah, I've heard about that issue. I'm getting phone calls and emails from people back home or in X state, you know, weighing in about that issue. And we realize it's important. And those calls have come in because we've done a good job getting the media to cover that issue. Or we've done a digital advertising campaign, social media campaign to raise that issue and motivate constituents to kind of weigh in. So, And then the strategic initiative side, it's kind of, you know, anything that's you know, anything that's um, kind of beyond kind of the day-to-day -day needs, but absolutely important to our members. So, you know, that's a lot of spending time thinking about how the industry is going to evolve in the future so that we can make sure that we are taking the steps needed to serve not just the industry of today, but the industry of tomorrow. And then a big part of that portfolio is is really working on our, our efforts to, you know, address construction workforce shortages. So workforce recruiting campaigns, finding resources uh, of, you know, what are the sort of the, 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 the construction training or recruiting or development programs that are working and making sure members know about them. And then um, working with our lobbyists to make sure that they're advocating for, you know, more career and technical education funding. Just to, just to raise on that point, one of our big priorities is addressing the the funding, the funding imbalance, right? So mm -hmm. right now, the federal government spends $6 on encouraging students in American schools to go from pre-K through college to an office job. For every $1 they spend on career and technical education in this country. So $120 billion a year to encourage kids to go to college for $20 billion a year on programs like, on career and technical education programs that don't just include construction, but you know, manufacturing, auto repair, other craft skills, right? And that they have the six to one funding imbalance, despite the fact that only a third of the jobs in, in the American economy require a four-year college degree. So the federal government is kind of setting the stage for a lot of people to think down on craft positions because they're putting their money where, you know, by the way they're putting their money, they're they're signaling intentionally or unintentionally that the, the really the only path to success in life is a college degree. And, you know, we just think that's incredibly damaging to students, to the economy and to the construction industry. Well, you know, what's amazing is that uh, I was talking with somebody yesterday, actually owns a plumbing company and he was I was I was we were talking about, like, you know, how the trades have changed. My grandfather was a German carpenter. And his view is he, the view of him at that time was more of a uh, he was a professional, you know. And nowadays, people the perspectives you know some people have on that is is not the same, and it has changed over the years. And I was asking him, why do you think that is? And so I want to ask you that same question: Why do you think that is? Well, you know. A lot, a lot of reasons behind that. I think the biggest is when we began the transition from a manufacturing economy to a, a, a more service economy, um, which meant, you know, lots of consulting and office jobs, uh, that um, we decided that the best way to get there was to encourage every student in America to go to college. 
learn, you know, get a college degree and go work in an office. And the, because ultimately we, you know, I think that people made the assessment that those were the jobs or the careers of the future were office jobs. And, you know, sure. We've got, I think now a lot more office jobs than we did 30, 40 years ago, but we haven't stopped building things. You know, the, we, we still actually are, are, you know, main, you know, manufacture more goods than anyone else in the world, you know, news to the contrary. And obviously we haven't stopped building things. Thank goodness. Uh, and, you know, frankly, there are many other craft careers besides construction that are still incredibly important and incredibly valuable and, frankly, incredibly difficult, right? Like, if you put Brian Termail into a construction project, I'd be off that job site in a half an hour. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd hurt myself. I'd hurt someone else. My mudding work, if I were doing sheetrock, looks like a topographical map of the Grand Canyon. I mean, there's an enormous amount of skill. And, frankly, there's an enormous amount of math and science that goes into just about every crap position that, that Brian Tremell couldn't do. You know, I never figured out sine, cosine, tangent. And I've, I've been to training programs where, you know, the, you know, the, the folks doing the carpentry work are doing calculus on the, you know, on the inside of the sheetrock as they figure out their, their, you know, the work they do. So, but we, we just, as a society made this collective decision that the success in life equals, you know, getting gussied up and going to an office. And sure, there are people in this country who get gussied up and go to an office and are successful. But we lost focus on the fact that there are multiple paths to success in our economy, right? You can make a good living in manufacturing today because it's a very, it's not, you know, um, uh, what's a Laverne and Shirley like, you know, inspecting bottle caps on a, on a you know, factory line anymore. It's, you know, high tech, high skilled. Uh, you know, making sure that, you know, sophisticated digital equipment is operating to, you know, the, you know, the, the tiniest fraction of a margin of error. And in construction, you, you know, it's, it's one of the few career opportunities that, A, really allows you to work in a team setting, that allows you to work on things that are going to be um, tangible and hopefully last for years to come. I have never and they would kill me if I tried to never taken my children to my office and pulled out a news release from three years ago and said, look at how wonderful this news release is. It is absolutely perfect. Aren't you proud that your dad wrote this news release? They would look <laughs> at me like I was crazy and then, you know, leave. Uh, but there isn't a construction worker at any level of the profession out there who hasn't driven someone they care about to a job they worked on and said, that's my bridge. That's my office building. That's my airport. So somehow we've lost focus on the fact that there are careers out there like construction where people are actually intensely proud of the work they do. Right. And, and they do this as part of a team. Right. You know, team stuff doesn't have to end with high school football. It can you can keep being part of a team in a way that that that, you know, we call a lot of office jobs, you know, teamwork, but it's not the same. And and and. So anyway, how do we get here? I, I think we just made this collective. This in America, we tend to swing the pendulum too far in any given direction. And at some point over the last 30 years, we swung the pendulum to success equals college and nothing else. And hopefully, that pendulum will swing back and not too far in an overcorrection to a broader appreciation that there are multiple paths to success in, in this life. And hopefully, not only just sort of popular perceptions but policy and funding will follow that. So Absolutely. that if you wanted to create a successful construction program in a high school, that the teacher running the program doesn't have to spend all of their precious free time going out and begging materials and tools and equipment from local contractors to stock that program with stuff that the students need to learn. So tell, thank you for that. I because I always like to ask people that because it it, it has changed over time and uh, there's as you said there's a lot of contributing factors there. But uh, an electrician, a plumber, a carpenter can make as good if not a better living uh, doing that. Plus, I don't, you know one thing I hate about going to the office every day is it's the same. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, right? It's you know, if you love monotony, then uh, you know, I guess an office job is for you. But you know, the other thing I like to think about is, 
when you think about the economics of a career in construction versus an office job, take the parking lot challenge. Go to any parking lot in any office, you know, maybe this is a materialistic way of looking at it, but hey, who doesn't like nice things sometimes? Go to any parking lot in any office and you're going to find a lot of, you know, older, not, you know, cars that maybe aren't most inspiring. Go to any parking lot, any construction job in this country, there's a lot of nice trucks out there. And <laughs> yeah, a lot. Pretty new, right? And guess what? Then the folks in that job are going home to homes they own and where there's a jet ski in the garage because they're not spending all of their hard-earned paying off their college debt. All the money they're earning, they're keeping. So um, I read it. There was a news story once in Seattle. This guy operates a crane, and he says, you know, look, all day I'm looking at two different mountain ranges up above the skyline of Seattle. And he goes, then I, and at the end of my shift, I'll go and grab a beer at a local bar, and everyone's looking at me like, you know, who is this person in boots? And he goes, but, you know, I'm enjoying my beer thinking that my net worth is higher than everyone else in this room in suits. And, and that, you know, and that's a street and probably um, – probably has more influence uh, on people because when you operate a crane, you know, you, everybody's life's in your hands. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so changing, you know. change, changing gears a little bit, tell us about AGC, kind of the history of AGC. If, if, you know, some people are aware, and I hate to admit this, but I, I don't know when AGC started and why it started. And can you kind of tell us that? Sure. Uh, so we're a hundred two year old, Trade Association. We were established in November 1918, and and what happened was um, in World War One, uh, you know, so the U.S. declared war in April of 1917, and then mm -hmm. and at the time it had something like I can't remember, like the 17th largest military in the world, right? Like it was a small military, so the country had to quickly mobilize. And among the things it did is they built, they called them cantonments, but they essentially built an enormous number of almost overnight military bases around the country to handle the recruiting, training uh, of new soldiers in, into the military. And obviously the federal government called on the construction industry. And, you know, it all got done and it all got done well, but the process of getting all of those cantonments built um was chaotic and difficult, right? As maybe any kind of, you know, overnight ramp up would be. And the the, the the federal government, President Wilson in particular, were frustrated that there wasn't a single place he could go to uh, to say, hey, I need this help from the construction industry. So after World War One, or as World War One is wrapping up, uh, you know, it ends in November of 1918, exactly when AGC was created. There was a the U.S. Chamber of Commerce tried to organize like a subdivision on construction. They had a meeting in I think it's in the summer of 1918 in Atlantic City, pulled together a bunch of construction firms and the general contractors who came to that meeting looked in the room, kind of watched that dynamic and thought, boy, this is a whole construction group being run by subcontractors instead of general contractors. We don't like this. So they peeled off and they, they created their own meeting of general contractors in November of 1918 out of Chicago. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but they met in a place called the LaSalle Hotel. Uh, and um, they created the Associated General Contractors of America. Mm. Uh, and as the name implied, it was at the beginning of uh, primarily a general contractor organization. We're now represent the entire construction industry. We actually have the largest, we're the largest subcontractor association in the country. Uh, but th their job was to um, educate the public, elected officials, appointed officials, uh, that the general contracting community operated with skill, with integrity, and responsibility, right? And, and then the way they built the association, after they got these initial members to sign on, is that there were in a lot of different parts of the country already building groups, the master builders of Western Pennsylvania, the General Building Contractors Association of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the AGC founders went around and got those groups to sign on as chapters. And so that kind of started the structure that we've got today. We're, we're a chapter-driven organization. We have 89 chapters around the country. And um, 
in places that didn't have existing groups, they created new chapters. The AGC of California, the AGC of Minnesota, the Georgia AGC were all created either because a number of urban groups got together and created a new agency chapter or there was nothing in that area and they wanted to be part of this national trade association so they created a chapter so that that's how we existed and you know i i'd say having gone through the history we just had our centennial as you might imagine two years ago and went through the history of this you know the first 10 20 years were touch and go you know, you know, the association kind of got its footing by 1928, then the depression hit and, you know, kind of hung on by a thread through the thirties. And then, you know, with the forties and but but the original intent, right, that the president could have a place to call actually worked in World War II when we mobilized. Uh, hang this up. The, 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 you know, the president and the, 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 it was then called the war department were able to call an AGC and sort of mobilize the construction industry for the World War II effort, and then same thing for Korea. And then since then, you know, when it's been responding to natural disasters, 9-11, whatever it is, Washington's had a place to call to help get the construction industry mobilized. So what do you, th what do you think the single largest uh, significant event that AGC has gone through uh, in its history? And how has that kind of oh. changed their model? I know that's a big yeah, question. No, yeah, yeah, single largest event. You know, that's in your I, opinion. So I don't put the I, weight of the I, world know, on. I, yeah, I mean, there's so many huge and significant events like World War II. Uh, you know, we had actually a history of pushing back against the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s. That this was one of these New Deal programs that got people out building, you know, park trails and park offices. We didn't like it because it was government self-performing. When we thought all that work should have gone through general contractors, and the work would have been done for a lower cost and a higher quality. Uh, but I, I'd say, you know, the biggest significant event that shapes modern AGC is in the late 1960s and 1970s and early 1980s, the construction industry underwent a huge fundamental change in it, how, in its labor model. You, you know, up through the early 1960s, mid 1960s, just about all construction work in this country was done uh, in cooperation with organized labor, right? And and we were originally, one of the original roles we did was we, AGC, through our chapters, were on the business side of the negotiating table with trade unions. And and where there's still a strong union presence, it's exactly what our chapters do. The, the number one service they provide for members is negotiating that regional collective, region-wide collective bargaining agreement uh, with the different unions. Uh, but in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, late 60s, 70s, and 80s, the industry went from one that was primarily union to one that is about 85%, 84% open shop, right? The 84% of construction workers choose not to be represented by a union. And, and that meant that we had to reinvent one of our main reasons for existence, right? You know? If we're not just the, the guys who are there negotiating with unions, but who have other roles that really forced us to think long and hard about what value do we bring to members? What are our strengths and what are the values we can bring? One of them obviously remains advocacy, right? Like there is, at, at the risk of paraphrasing sort of a bad James Bond title song, nobody does it better. I think it was Carly Simon who sang it. No, nobody does it better in terms of slogging it out with federal officials to fix stupid regulations for example mm -hmm. we just that that's not that, that that's not that's like the black diamond ski slope of federal advocacy and and really it's tedious tedious time-consuming work and we're really good at it right so we we are the if you don't like federal regulations you need to be a part of agency but it also made us think long and hard about, well, what are the, I mean, one of the reasons we have the sort of the three pillars of agencies education is we realized, oh my gosh, you know, we need to really deliver more services and benefit to members and created in the 70s and 80s our whole educational programming. And then I think this sort of broader sense that we're this community that connects people to each other so they can learn from each other. I mean, technology has made that a lot easier for us, but that's something that came out of this huge transition in the way the industry evolved in its labor model. Uh, and, you know, in, in a lot of respects, that transition has made, you know, the industry a lot more nimble and flexible. I mean, you've got a lot of firms that, you know, when they want to make a decision, they don't have to negotiate it with their collective bargaining agreement, they make a decision. Um, but 
but it's also had an impact on workforce, right? There, when the union was, when the industry was primarily union, you know, that everyone went through an apprenticeship program to learn the craft. Right. But you know, only 15% of the 16% of the construction workforce are union. That's a lot of people are not going through a union-operated apprenticeship program to learn the craft, which is why high school level, what you call vocational ed, now it's called career and technical education, is so important. That's why community college programs that teach construction skills are so important. That's why open shop apprenticeship programs that have, that have been created largely against the will of a lot of federal regulators. But, you know, we have some chapters with incredible open shop apprenticeship training programs. I mean, the, we had to sort of reinvent this whole model for preparing the workforce. And, and that's given us a lot more options, but it's, it, it's sort of made that challenge a little harder. And let's be clear, even in the union model, you, you know, contractors are struggling to find enough workers to hire because the, the unions, they may not admit it, but they have a hard time getting people into their apprenticeship halls it's the uh -huh. same, for the same cultural reasons that we have a hard time getting people into high school CTE programs or community college correct construction programs. But so it's just how, kind of, I would say that that transition in the labor makeup of the industry over those three decades or 20 year period really defines how we've evolved as an association to where we are today. Well, you know, you talked a little bit about this, but I, I also, you know, am interested. How, what does AGC, what's the future look like for AGC? Is it going along, uh, you know, doing the, doing the same thing they're doing now? Is there any... Uh, you know, things that they're going to be focusing on uh, more in the future. So what's the future for agency? Sure. So, you know, here's the, the I think one of the biggest challenges facing contractors today and, and, you know, the construction industry is increasingly unique in that there are so many small and mid-sized firms that are still like dominant players in the regional markets. Right. You know, it's not like, you know, there's six oil companies where you buy gas from or that there are, you know, three cellular communications companies. There are thousands, tens of thousands of construction firms around the country and they're all of different sizes. And that's what makes our industry so great and so diverse. At the same time, you've got a lot of small and medium sized folks that are getting that appreciate that we are in the brink of one of one of these sort of radical transformations in how construction is operated, comparable to you know the introduction of power to construction equipment. Now it's technology, right? We've got all kinds of technology, and it's not just mm -hmm. sort of computers in the front office, but it's you know how do you how do you integrate drones and autonomous equipment and robotic scanners and exoskeleton suits on, onto the job site? But how do you do it in a way that you're not throwing money away? And how do you do it so that you're investing in this stuff profitably? And, you know, for every large construction firm that's got the resources to kind of, you know, investigate, explore, test, and sort of select some winning technologies to use and then train their folks on how to use it, you've got so many other firms that um, they've got to figure that out on their own. And they don't, and the person who does their tech acquisitions probably does their payroll and maybe their safety person as well, right? So, one of the things that we think we'll be spending an awful lot of time on in the future is helping construction firms identify what are the, the technology trends out there, what are the, the technologies worth investing in, and learning how to use those new technologies and the techniques they enable profitably. So, so we're going to become like a – and again, how we do that is that because you're a member of our community, right, AGC – that there are there are members out there who have already tried and tested this technology who can share that information, so that company Y in Rochester, Minnesota doesn't have to reinvent the wheel that company X in Macon, Georgia already figured out. So I mean I think more put more more broadly, technology is going to radically transform this industry, right? And and it and with all the potential of it, there's an enormous amount of risk in that a lot of firms can waste a lot of money on technology they don't need or on acquiring technology they do need but using it poorly and we think we can really help members understand navigate and profit from this technology transition that's underway and frankly that's accelerated since the pandemic which has forced so many firms to think how do i minimize the number of people on a job site and how do i replace that with technology so that i don't have 10 guys jammed into a small room worrying about them getting COVID. Well, that, that's interesting that uh, 
Uh, I never thought of it in the way, same way of kind of how we went to, you know, using machinery in construction. And uh, I was watching something on the uh, Panama Canal, you know, and and it's just interesting about, you know, that was a huge leap forward. And I agree with you. Uh, my business is working with a lot of technology, scheduling, estimating, other stuff like that. And it it really everyone thinks there's extra cost or an extra leap. But if you look at the productivity like we do, you know, on screen takeoff, you know, that mm -hmm. no longer do you need to send drawings out to everybody. You can simply send an electronic file, you know. <laughs> so so in uh, and for people who are a little older like me and you, uh, we 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 get it. But for the younger younger generation, they don't they haven't seen it because that's the way they've grown up with it. But, uh, uh, you know. Is what's the biggest challenge that ADC has AGC has in front of them right now, in your opinion? You know, in in our in in our relationship with our members, I think the biggest challenge is, is that you know we've got an awful lot of resources that can help members, but they're fighting through the crisis of what a former boss might used to refer to as the crisis of the inbox. Right? Are you really going to think about that webinar on? how you need to comply with Davis-Bacon rules when you've got someone on the phone telling you you've got five guys out sick on project A, you've got someone else on the phone saying, hey, the concrete truck that was supposed to show up and make a delivery for this poor that I've got 15 guys standing around for isn't here. And then see someone saying that, hey, the payroll computers are you know, glitching again, can you help me out? Which one of those are you not gonna pay attention to? The webinar the next Tuesday on how to comply mm -hmm. with Davis Bacon, even though you actually need that to be a successful business. So finding ways to cut through the clutter and deliver value for members, appreciating that the, 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 the amount of time they've got to focus on any piece of information from us is small and shrinking. And that, you, you know, the, 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 the information inputs they're receiving are growing, right? They're getting bombarded with information everywhere they look. Every time they open their phone, every time they look at the computer, every time the radio goes on, there's some piece of information that's coming, hitting them. So how do you cut through the clutter and how do you make sure members appreciate and understand and know how to benefit from the services we provide for them? I think it's not a challenge unique to construction, but it's certainly one we as an association face. And, and you know, I'm not sure if we have the right answer, but, you know, obviously a lot of that is, Everyone's got a device now where you can watch video and listen to audio. And so many of mm -hmm. our members spend so much time in their rigs going from job A to job B that we've been doing a lot more audio only content or audio and video content that, you, you know, you can um, you can more easily consume than having to read an eight page article. I mean, excuse me, an eight sentence article. Right. If someone if you can just listen to something, um, you know, it's easier to comprehend that that's important. So we've been looking at how does. How, does, how do we communicate in a multimedia way, in a way that actually uh, appreciates that our members are super busy and have super limited amount of time to actually pay attention to what we're doing, but actually need us. And we just need to find a way to connect them with the information they need to be successful. So that's I think that's a challenge we're always going to be working on. I mean, in D.C., what's our challenge? I mean, we're, we're in a phase where we're, you know, it's not a business friendly environment, right? It's kind of open season on employers right now uh, as, you know, people want to blame them for many society's ills and have them pay for all of their progressive policies, <laughs> you know, to pay people not to work. So, um, uh, you know, pushing back against that, that climate, um, you know, again, something that we know how to do, we, we've got, you know, but it's, it's a challenge and it's going to be a challenge until, you know, that, that political pendulum swings a different direction. Um, and, but even if that happens, you know, every time the government adds new regulations, it adds layer upon layer upon layer upon layer to its red tape. And it's really easy to add new rules. It's, it's almost impossible to get rid of old rules. So, you know, we, we, one of the other challenges is just making sure that we don't apply kind of permanent emergency breaks to our economic growth. By, by having Washington do stupid stuff, which unfortunately seems inclined to do a lot. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and then 
I mean, other challenges, I mean, as I said, you're managing a, a rapidly changing industry. And then I'd say, finally, workforce short, workforce issues and, to some, and demographics, right? So we got 89% of our members tell us they're having a hard time finding qualified workers to hire. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, you, you know, only 16% of the construction industry are women, even though they make up 51% of the workforce. Only 6% of the construction industry are, are black, uh, African-American, and, uh, even though they represent 12% of the workforce. So finding a way, I mean, we're fighting workforce shortages with one hand tied behind our back and finding a way to recruit people into the industry, to prepare them for careers in construction and then to retain them in construction careers uh, is going to be essential if this industry is actually going to have the people it needs to keep pace with demand and stay relevant. So by a minor, go ahead, which is one other, now you got me thinking, one other minor threat, which is out there, not an immediate threat, but just kind of exists as always potential is, and we saw one company attempt it and fail kind of rather visibly in Katera, but the, is, you know, this, this idea of outside disruption of the construction industry, that some tech guys having just built like a multi-billion dollar saucer-like headquarters are going to decide, geez, we could probably use our technology savvy to do better what the construction industry already does and come in and disrupt the model. Um, and, you know, I, I, is that a real threat or just kind of like the boogeyman in the night? It's not, I'm not sure, but it's out there. Do you uh, uh, thank you for that? Uh, I mean, that's a, that, that's uh, uh, honestly, it, it's almost like drinking uh, water from a fire hose. There's so much there, you know. Um, it, and I'm sure there's a, I know there's a lot of background uh, on all of that. Now I know that you uh, have your fingers in a lot of different chapters across the nation. Um, is is what do you what do you believe is the one thing that most people are concerned about? within those chapters. And I think you said the answer, but I I wanted to clarify it. Well, in most years I would have said workforce shortages, number one issue that our members are worried about. Today it's workforce shortages and I'll just call sort of broadly give the category supply chain disruptions. And that's everything from mm-hmm. the fact that every week a contractor gets a new letter from the supplier saying, dear valued customer, thank you for being for your business. Next week you'll be paying 10% more for the product you were you were you estimated three weeks ago at X price and this now much more expensive. And also the fact that with the coronavirus and with these unemployment supplements that we kind of unwisely extended, we're paying people not to work at every level of the supply chain. So the factories don't have enough people to build what needs to to be built for construction materials. The shippers don't have enough people to ship the materials that construction firms need to build projects. The warehouse and distributors don't have enough people to handle it. The subcontractors don't have enough people. And the general contractors don't have enough people, right? So, uh, and that affects not just, you know, having enough people to have enough glazers on the job site, but it means that when the when you get the glazers, you're not sure if the glass is going to show up that the glazers need to install. And you're uh-huh. not sure what you're going to pay for it. So, um, we're... Because of the pandemic and because of our policy responses to it, we, you know, we've got all the challenges of pre-pandemic workforce shortages with all the challenges of the pandemic era, you know, uh, we just can't seem to figure out how to get stuff made and shipped and distributed to the people who want it uh, in a timely way anymore. And, and that's a, the, you know, and I can only speak from, well, I'm, you know, I, we have a lot of clients. I, we have over 4,000 clients in the United States. And, you know, it's not like a Kentucky issue. It's not like a D.C. issue. It's an everybody issue, you know, and uh, there's nothing regional about this, <laughs> you know. And what scares me is is what happens when the rest of the world gets turned on, too, you know, after yeah. this COVID thing. So, um so uh, I, I kind of want to wrap up today uh, just asking you, uh, just want to ask you one last question about, um, you know, if there was any, you know, you travel a lot, you talk with a lot of people. If you were to give advice to anybody in the construction industry um, from talking with people, whatever, um, 
what advice would you give them, either personally or professionally? That's a good question. What advice would I give them? Pay your dues. No, um, uh, no what advice? You know, I, I would, I, I think they already understand and appreciate it, but that, the, you know, the best way to be successful, we've seen as a professional and as a firm, is to be willing to learn from your peers and even your competitors when they're willing to share that information, right? That, that collectively, yes, we're always going to compete. Yes, uh, you know, one day your firm will win the job, the next day a firm, the other firm will win a job. But, but that we, you know, if this industry is going to be successful, it has to learn from each other, right? And, and I guess the other piece of advice would be when it comes to workforce shortages is no, ain't no one going to solve our problems but ourselves. Mm-hmm. So the days when other people are going to create programs that, that benefit you are over if they ever existed. And if you want a good pipeline of qualified workers, that means you have to get involved with your local school districts. That means you have to get involved and get in the door with your community colleges and help them craft programs that are actually going to be effective. That, that, Unfortunately, um, uh, and that you've got to be active when it comes to making sure that people in Washington and in your state capitals uh, hear your voice, right? Yes, yes, we're really good at our job lobbying, but guess who a member of Congress cares more about? A D.C.-based lobbyist or an employer in their home district who employs lots of their constituents. Mm-hmm. So, y- you know... Which unfortunately means that, you know, part of being in this industry and being a successful construction professional today isn't just focusing exclusively on your firm. It's that you have to contribute to the broader benefit of the industry to help make your firm more successful, right? There's both a selfless and a selfish reason to do that, right? Mm -hmm. You want your firm to be more successful, but to want your firm to be more successful, you can't just focus within the walls of your, your company. Uh, you've got to focus on sort of broader industry issues. The good news is that we make it really easy for people to get involved, right? We've got the resources, the tools, the technology to make it super easy and as less time and as little and consume as least amount of time as possible. But you got to you got to get involved. And and what we saw during the coronavirus, like during those early days of the pandemic, when we were able to get federal officials to identify construction as essential, which allowed construction to keep operating most, not all, but most parts of the country during those early sort of days of economic shutdowns. We did that because so many members got engaged and told their federal officials and told their state officials and told their city and county officials that we're essential and we know how to operate amid complex environments safely and we have the capacity to adjust and adapt to COVID and work with it. And because so many people got engaged, we kept we kept working, right? We were the envy of the economy. I mean, everyone was looking around and saying, why are those guys still working? Uh, and it's that kind of engagement. I mean, there was an existential threat, and everyone was motivated because, oh, my gosh, I'm about to get shut down. But we need that level of engagement even on stuff that doesn't seem as imminent of a threat but has the same potential to affect your ability as a, as a contractor to succeed. You need to get engaged. Well, I want to thank you, Brian, and I want to thank AGC. Um, uh, you know, my my interaction with AGC is uh, strictly in Kentucky. You know, although we've we you know we've interacted with other uh, you know other chapters, and uh, I can just say you know the the chapter here in Kentucky is is strong and vibrant. Has a lot of you know talk about these guys compete against each other, but there's a lot of uh, uh, collaboration. And I met Richard because I was a professor at a university. And uh, unlike most universities that, you know, we actually, uh, you know, we have, we're, we're Midwest. So we got kind of those Midwest hardworking young men and women, you know, and uh, uh, people, a lot of people recruited from us. And Richard Vincent, which is our chapter, uh, which is in charge of our chapter, he, you know, he had been such an integral part about helping us kind of push things along and, and helping us, uh, you know, uh, 
provide the contractors with what with what they need and, and before then i was really i was really impressed with how much focus uh agc put on you know getting the right people because we're in a people business we build buildings but we're ultimately in a people business you know so i i just want to thank agc as an organization it's it's uh i'm a member and uh, i'm a consulting company and a lot of people say how are you a member of agc well agc is not just general contractors we have there's subcontractors there's a and e firms there's consultants like me and um they really have done uh, a world of good the only thing I would ask is, I wish we'd figure out this healthcare thing sooner or later. It costs too much. <laughs> but I well, guess you guys have never, never heard that. You know, that's a whole nother, no, absolutely. You know, it's, I mean, that's a whole nother issue. And, <laughs> you know, here's a great example of Washington thought it was doing something to help, and they've only made the situation even more complex. So oh, I know. I know. Uh, well, I, as I know, do with all. My, my dad was an orthopedic surgeon, so he died in the mid-1980s. But uh, even in the early 1980s, he was telling people who were coming to him for advice about, should I be a doctor, not to consider a career in medicine. He said, it's only going to get more complicated. It's only going to get more litigious. The big companies are only going to be more in charge and take the profit. It's given how much time and money it takes to become a doctor, it's not worth it. And, you know... I, he was unfortunately right, you know, and, and then the problem is that like we've got a really good healthcare system in this country, but boy, it's expensive and boy, it's cumbersome. And and I think most of the reasons it's expensive and cumbersome are not because of the, the medical procedures and the doctors, but everything else that goes with it. I know, like crazy, crazy world. So as I do with all my uh, guests, I give you a chance to have a lot the last word, Brian. So take it away. Oh, gosh. Um I would just say that, um, oh, my last words. Uh, and I, um, <laughs> you know, for, I, I would just, one last piece, just thinking about advice. The, the one last piece of advice is, and you, you kind of hit on this is, you know, you're a member of the, of the chapter of our association. Thank you for that, by the way. It, it, and is join your chapter. If you are in any way connected with the construction industry and not just join the chapter, but, but get involved, even if it just means going to the skeet shoot and the, and the tailgate that the chapter has, but also volunteer. If the chapter does a charity project volunteer, because especially if you're, you know, if you can run a consulting business or if you're a subcontractor looking to partner with general contractors, do you think it will help if you've gone out and helped, you know, sort of, You've done a food drive with the, the guy who runs the general contracting firm in your town through your involvement with AGC? Uh, the answer is yes, it helps. People, you know, we are social animals by nature, and, you know, we, we always think well of the people that we know and interact with and respect. And also, I mean, to my earlier point, getting involved, even just in your chapter, is the best way to shape the outcome of the industry that I think all of us are involved in because it, we're super proud of it and think it's a super cool industry. Use a technical term. So I'll leave it there. Get involved, get engaged and have Well, fun. thank you. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, um, I, uh, I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate you taking a, taking some time away from your schedule. I know the people who listen to this uh, really um, are really interested in what you had to say. Uh, we like to have different types of guests on and, and you brought a different, uh, aspect to what we know we look at and I, I want to thank you for getting up every day and and carrying the flag for agc because that's what we definitely need it in order for us to <laughs> continue to do business we need to have somebody up there do, doing the work for us so i want to thank you and and i do want to just shout out to uh, richard vincent i know i've said his name several different times he did pay me to say his name every time i got 20 dollars for saying his name so um but i just wanted to say richard's a Richard's a, a great chapter uh, uh, chapter lead, and he's he's j just done some great things for the general contractors and companies like me and universities uh, within uh, this region. But thank you once again, Brian, and uh, tune in next week for another uh, another uh, uh, podcast uh, for Connex. All right, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
Awesome. Thanks, Scott.